Genesis chapter 5, beginning at verse 28. When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah for 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they brought children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God who does not uh, stay distant, but you move towards us. You're constantly moving towards us in love. Um, and you lovingly, tenderly speak to us through your word, by your spirit. We pray you would do that now, even in the difficult words, even in the hard things that you might have to say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I wonder what you make of this. Is it half full or half empty? What do you think? Uh, essentially, I'm asking you, are you an optimist or a pessimist? I really don't care what you think about a glass of water. Uh, I, I'm really, uh, even further than that, actually, asking specifically about the human race. Are you optimistic or are you otherwise about the progress that we're making? Like, I wonder if you would agree with what this author wrote. Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace, and that our children will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of achievement. That was the author H.G. Wells in 1937, two years before World War II broke out. So that nine years later, just after that war had ended, he wrote this. 
the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment and fear to a world from which such things had seemed well-nigh banished has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. So let me ask the question to you again. Can we expect the world to become a better place? Or is human progress actually just a myth? I mean, we hear quite a lot of talk, don't we, these days about, uh, in our culture, uh, that make the unspoken assumption that we are indeed making progress. Like I heard on the radio recently, a politician talking about human rights abuses, and they said, we cannot tolerate such atrocities in this day and age. And you've probably heard many a politician or a celebrity say things like, oh, well, this is the 21st century. We cannot surely be thinking or behaving in that way in this day. That should have died out in the dark ages, surely. And where, while we might agree with some of the sentiment, the hidden assumption is we've made progress since previous days and ages. But have we? Undeniably, we've made progress in a whole range of ways in terms of medicine, technology, knowledge. But are we making any progress? Are we becoming better? Are we better behaved? Are we building better societies? And I'm not really asking you the question this time because really I think what we need is God's verdict rather than our own judgment. And God's answer in the early chapters of Genesis is to say, no. <laughs> no, we're basically fallen and corrupted and we need him to save us. Well, it's a good year and a half since we looked at Genesis 1 to 5, so I suspect most of you might have, have forgotten what we covered in that series. But to many of us, the story's pretty familiar, isn't it? God, in his great mercy, he builds this... Uh, world makes this world of beauty and order. It reflects his majesty. Uh, a world he simply and yet profoundly describes as good. And yet into the story walk Adam and Eve, the first humans who corrupt it and themselves by rebelling against him. So the world is now under the curse of their sin. And in musical terms, everything from that point on describes a crescendo of sin that ultimately finds us here in Genesis 6, verse 5, with God saying, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only conti evil continually. Now, I suspect most of us find that diagnosis fairly strong, don't we? It, it makes us bristle a bit. So let's have a closer look to, to see what God sees here. Firstly, he sees human de degeneration. As in verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, a lot of ink has been written, <laughs> it's been spilled <laughs> over what the sons of God are there, who they are. So bear with me here as we get a little bit technical. There's two main schools of thought. Option one, 
The sons of God are what many have called the godly line of Seth from Genesis chapter 5. And that what is happening here is that that line that should be worshipping God and giving themselves to God and, and, and calling out on the name of the Lord, they are intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain from Genesis chapter 4. And so this really wasn't what God intended. It's not for their best or for, from his will. Option two. Actually, they're angels. Which generally speaking, in the Bible, sons of God, that, that's who they're referring to. Angelic beings. And Jesus tells us in the Gospels that angels do not marry. They were not made to marry. And yet here, what have we got happening? They're, they're crossing over their God-given nature and doing some kind of ungodly cross-human-angel vibe thing. And no one knows for sure, really, what can be said, which of the options is, is the best one. But either way, these marriages, they fly in the face of God's good design for marriage. They are anti-God. That is clear. And you might even say that they redefine marriage. Because in terms of what they are doing, these sons of, of God, it's utterly self-centered in verse 2. Literally, they see and they take. Does that ring any bells? If you do remember back a year and a half, or you've read Genesis chapter 3, they're an echo of Eve's fall into sin in the garden. Eve saw that the fruit was good for food and a delight to the eyes, so she took and ate. This is just a repeating of the original sin. Human beings saying, we will choose what we want. We will have what we want. We don't care what you say, God. It's fascinating, isn't it, how often what we know to be true is overruled because something captivates us, catches our eye. Makes me think of um, this guy. Do you really know who he is? This, is? this is Abu from Aladdin. And uh, this little monkey uh, wanders into the cave of wonders with Aladdin. And, and they have one task that they need to do. They need to find the lamp. Uh, and they can only touch the lamp. That's it. That's all that matters. That's, that should be the focus of everything. But then Abu sees the jewel, doesn't he? This incredible ruby. And, and, and it just makes the lamp pale in significance in comparison. It just looks so boring and unimportant now because he's captivated by the jewel, so he goes after that. And I think that's what we like, folks. It sums up what we often find ourselves doing, doesn't it? Here is stuff that we know is wrong, but it looks better to us to people around us, to, to our culture. And so rather than trusting God, we, we go after it because it's captivated us. We go with the culture and we ignore him. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, so they just took them, regardless of what God said, regardless of how God had made them. And not only is all that going on, but the Nephilim, however you say that, they're there too. Who let them in? Verse 4. Uh, and I don't think we need to get freaked out and confused about the Nephilim. Uh, something, uh, a crossbreed of kind of giant angel human type things. But we're told who they are. 
aren't we? These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. They're just the heroes, the celebrities of their day, the A-listers, the, the elite, the ruling powers, the ones who made all the headlines, who everybody talked about and wanted to ingratiate themselves to and wanted to be around and who let uh, trample over the little people in order to get what they wanted. <laughs> Make no mistake, these people got what they wanted. And folks, I don't think that's very different to our day, is it? We see here a culture, a world, well, we see here a world that God made, which has now become a culture obsessed with choice, where we're told all the time that if you just want something, go get it. Go for what your eyes desire, what your hearts want. And the result is a reworking of marriage for our own purposes. And we celebrate power and fame and heroes, and God doesn't even get a look in. And so Genesis 6 tells us, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humans was great in the earth, but also that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, or total depravity, as Christian writers have called it down through the ages. It's one of the strongest statements in the Bible of our fundamental <coughs> sinfulness. But that doesn't mean that human beings are as bad as they could possibly be. And it's not saying that all of our actions are sinful. And it's not saying that humanity can't do any good. <laughs> Got to be clear about that. What it does mean, however, is that God sees what we don't when we look at people around us. Or even when we look in the mirror at ourselves. He sees our hearts. And in the Bible, your heart is it's not a pump which gets, distributes blood around your body, but it's the center of your personality where you make the biggest decisions and commitments of your life. And in verse 5, what, what, what verse 5 is saying for us is that the heart, the, the personality of every human being is by nature inclined away from God and what is good, and therefore towards evil. It's like my Asda shopping trolley, or at least my Asda shopping trolley when I choose one of those ones, you know, with a wonky wheel, so that when you push it, it just won't go straight, just keeps veering off to the side. That's what we're like as humans. <coughs> Our hearts push us off the straight line of God's will. Now, the optimists will deny that and say that we're basically good, and the problem actually lies with education and environment. And while it must be said that research shows that the better someone's education and environment, then the better their prospects, the better off they'll be. The research also shows that the better off we are, the lower the percentage of money we'll give to charity. In other words, the more selfish we become. And you also have to say, if we're basically good, why do we experience this inclination to sin as something that we have to resist in order to do good? Why does doing good require so much effort, like pushing the Asda trolley with the wonky wheel? Whereas sinning, by comparison, is just so easy. Like if you're a parent, 
Uh, did you ever buy early learning center toys to teach your children to lie and to snatch? We didn't do that. But somehow, it just happens naturally because we are all born liars and we are all born looking out for number one. Even the very best of our deeds are tinged with self-interest, are they not? I want to do good towards you, not just because I want to do good, but because I want you to like me and do good to me. And so it's simplistic and false to say that human beings are basically good. Or, or on the flip side, <coughs> side, that we are all equally evil. Well, between those two, there are only some are evil while others are good. Whereas the Bible explains the complexity of human beings by showing that we're creatures made in the image of God with a great capacity for good. And yet with this dreadful inclination to evil, which actually makes our behavior a somewhat ambiguous mix. The Bible also shows us in verse 6, God's heartbreak. It says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Is this God saying, Oh, oh bother. Oh, oh dear, though. Why did I ever make humans? I mean, this has all gone horribly wrong. It's a, it's a mess. That's what I feel like when I'm, I, I do something that I'm sorry about. Like the last time I went for a run. And I got about halfway around. And I was sorry that I had even started. Is that, is that what God's saying here? I mean, we, we think that of God, don't we? You know, that he set with great good intentions to make this world. And it was a brilliant world. But then, ah, oh, James, it all goes a bit wrong. And so he gets a bit disillusioned and discouraged and starts to think differently about it. And spends the whole of the rest of the Old Testament feeling angry about it and expressing that anger. Uh, but then he cheers up a bit when we get to the New Testament and he goes all kind of smiley and starts showering us with his love. I mean, if I was to ask you, how do you picture God? Is he, is he a God of anger or a God of love? There's a problem there, right there, actually. Not in your thinking, but in my question. Why? Because it assumes he cannot be both at one and the same time. It just assumes he's like us. Like when I'm angry, I'm angry. And when I'm, when I'm loving, I, 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 I'm being nice to people. Yet God is all of his attributes, all of the time. That's who God is. So we can't look at things in the Bible and say, well, well at this point he's being a bit mean, and then at this point he's showing love. No, he's not like you and me. His justice is always loving, and his love is always just. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29 says, He who is the glory of Israel, that's God, a, word, a name for God. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. It's a brilliant song by the Aussie singer-songwriter Colin Buchanan called God Never Goes Oops. It's great, I love it. God never says oops, never slips up, never makes any mistakes, no. Why? Because he's not like us, constantly changing his mood and his mind. So what is God 
doing in Genesis 6 here? He is expressing the pain, yes, the pain, actual pain that he willingly chose to bear in creating the universe. You see, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they were in perfect, contented relationship with one another. And yet they chose to create a world. And in doing so, they chose also to give us free will. And therefore invite the possibility that we might rebel against him. And so God is expressing in verse 6 the pain that he's experiencing because we've done that, because of human sin. He feels it deeply and intensely in his heart. And that means you can never think of God as some kind of hard-hearted ogre in heaven, completely unmoved from the things of humanity, like Bruce in Bruce Almighty imagines God. I don't know if you've seen the film, but he says, oh, God is just this mean kid with a magnifying glass, Uh, and I'm the ant. He could fix my life in five minutes if he wanted to but he'd rather burn off my feelers and watch me squirm. Smite me, oh thou mighty smiter. We must never think of God like that. He is a God whose heart aches for the creation that he's made, whose heart aches for you. But don't I flip that and think that therefore God is some kind of weakling. Oh, poor God, sitting in heaven, miserable, miserable God. No, God is not weak because he is the God who knows, who always knew that this would happen and is in control of it all. And he is the God who acts to fix and sort the issues that bring him and us pain. And so in verse 7, he says, it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. These are deep and important verses for understanding the nature of God. He is not unmoved, but neither is he weak and smiles at sin. He is the God who feels and suffers and yet deals with sin because he must. This is our God. The God who is loving when he is just and just when he is loving. And so therefore he will spare no half measures in punishing sin. But also at one and the same time he will spare no half measures in affecting our salvation. Which brings us finally to God's favor in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Sorry, this is really corny, but have you heard the joke about the scarecrow who won a Nobel Prize? And do you know this one? He was outstanding in his field. I know, I know, Christmas was yonks ago. No cracker jokes, Ken, please spare us. And I I know this is tenuous, but Noah was outstanding in his generation, wasn't he? There was something different about Noah. He stood out, in fact, in the dark world of Genesis 6, you could almost say that he shone like the light of the world. So how did Noah end up like that in verse 9? Being righteous and blameless and walking faithfully with God. 
answer? <laughs> well, not because Noah was incredibly awesome and any different to us. God's diagnosis in verse 5 <coughs> applied, to <it. coughs> applied to him as well. Excuse me. He was sinful by nature, like the rest of us. And left to his own devices, he would have perished like everybody else, as we're going to see in the next chapter or so. But God showed him favor. And that word favor is is the very first time the word grace basically comes into play in the Bible. And it's an explanation of what comes next. As in the Bible Neither righteous nor blameless means sinless. Righteous means in right relationship with God, sincerely trying to treat God as he should be treated. And blameless is applied to those who do that in an out-of-the-ordinary way. The order of play in God's dealing with us is always as follows. Sin, the condition that God finds us in, every one of us. Grace, God's undeserved choice to intervene in our lives with forgiveness and acceptance that only he can give which motivates us to change so that we then have faith leading to obedience as our response to God's great grace so if we're trusting in Jesus we can be described as righteous and blameless and walking with God and it's not necessarily because we're a whole lot less sinful than those around us. It's because God has shown us grace. And folks, that should make us humble, shouldn't it? But it also should make us hopeful for the salvation of those around us because if God, because God can show them grace just as easily as he's shown it to us, no matter how far away their lifestyle seems from him, And in a world like Noah's, which despises God and turns its back on him, receiving God's grace and favor will mean our hearts will more and more incline, not away from him like a shopping trolley, but towards him. As we say, oh Lord God, I'm going to trust in you and I'm going to try and walk with you and for you. Even in the midst of this generation, no matter what the culture says. Do you think Noah would have appeared any different to the world around him? Yes, absolutely, clearly he stood out. So as I finish, I I just want to throw two challenges to you, two questions. The first is, have you received God's grace? God has made a promise through Jesus to us that if you trust in him, then he will not treat you as your sins deserve but he will give you his righteousness. He will bless you. He will smile upon you. And then secondly, are you walking differently? How are you living distinctly to love and honor him in your generation? Let me just give us a moment to think that through, to pray that through by ourselves, and then I'll pray before we close in song. Let's... Take a moment of quiet and ask God to teach us to live his way.
Oh Lord, we thank you for showing us favor through the Lord Jesus. And that though that is completely unmerited, you keep holding it out to us by your Spirit. So please help us to receive it and walk in it that we might grow in that grace to become more like him and be as he called us to be, his light of the world, reflecting him in the darkness of this culture around us. We pray that for his name's sake and our good and your glory. Amen.